2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nalbeth Just six months after the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, issued a rare public health advisory about the need to respond to a youth mental health crisis, Connecticut lawmakers passed a package of bills, now laws, to address this issue in our state. According to the Surgeon General's office, one in three high school students reported persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness, while suicide rates for young people rose 57% in a decade. Today we hear from Connecticut child advocate Sarah Egan about how the new laws will impact access to mental care, mental health care for young people. Coming up where we live, we also talk to a social worker in schools, a role that could be boosted and strengthened across local school districts thanks to the creation of a state grant program to help school boards hire and retain social workers and others trained in mental health care. Now, what questions do you have? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr Share a comment on Facebook or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first is Sarah Egan again, child advocate for the state of Connecticut. Sarah, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Now, before um, I ask you to break down these new laws to address children's mental health, I wanted you to maybe talk a little bit about, you know, this crisis point that we're at and what you have um, seen and heard in our state related uh, to youth um, mental health.
3: Yeah, well, thank you, Lucy. And it's such an important topic. And thank you for spending so much time on it um, in, in in these last many months. Um, So the school mental health, the child mental health crisis um, is not new, right? And I think that that's part of what we saw in the Surgeon General's report. And that's part of what I think we we need to start by talking about is that this has been building uh, for some time, right? It has been years now that suicide is one of the leading causes of death in children starting at age 10. That's a national phenomenon. It's a Connecticut phenomenon. And we see, um, you know, the death OF CHILDREN BY SUICIDE AT A YOUNGER AND YOUNGER AGE um, IN OUR STATE, NOW AS YOUNG AS 11 AND 12 IN THE LAST FEW YEARS ALONE, RIGHT, the, SOME OF THE NUMBERS THAT YOU POINTED TO. WE SEE IN SOME OF OUR OWN STUDIES IN CONNECTICUT, CONNECTICUT ADMINISTERS THE YOUTH RISK BEHAVIOR SURVEY, WHICH IS A CDC PUBLIC HEALTH SURVEY, that self, WHERE KIDS SELF REPORT HOW THEY'RE FEELING. WE KNOW THAT OVER A THIRD OF CHILDREN REPORT FEELING THAT THEY FELT PERSISTENTLY SAD OR HOPELESS for weeks at a time in the last 12 months. And we know that of those children, um, almost uh, over 40% of those children will report out that they don't have someone to talk to when they feel that way. And and I think what we need to know is that that's a number that's getting much worse over the last decade. Over the last decade. Mm -hmm. And then COVID comes in with all of its disruption and its disconnection, and it exacerbates all of that in addition to um, the problems for children who still struggle to have their basic needs met um, in our communities. And where it leaves us is a lot of children feeling in crisis, a lot of children uh, falling through the cracks, a lot of children telling us, as they did in New Haven with their mental health walkout, that they don't feel seen and they don't feel heard. And I think a lot of adults who care deeply, deeply, deeply about our children, but who are strained to the breaking point as well, So I think this year, you know, something just had to give, and I think it's starting to.
2: When you say that children as young as ten are dying by suicide, you know, that's that's a really hard thing to hear, Sarah. And so, when we think about like the culmination of factors here, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk more about. We have talked a lot about this on the show over the last uh, two years, and I think uh, there's increased awareness about the importance of mental health care, support, um, access to resources. And uh, I'm just wondering, when we we hear about children um, that, you know, are, are suffering in this way, you know, where are the gaps here? Yeah.
3: Well, I don't think it's one particular thing, and I and I think that you know, Lucy, when you say that we have been talking about mental health, we have been, right? You know, we talk about here. You know, people are talking about in the community. We're talking about uh, you know a rise in anxiety and depression and 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 a sense of isolation with our kids, and and why is that, right? Um, you know, I don't think there's any one particular thing. And how do we fix it? Well, it's not going to be just one particular thing, right? And it's, and it's we have to bring the talk that we're doing and turn that into a real change in how we support children's health, development, and wellness, and families' health development and wellness, really from day one. You know, we have, a, well, the good thing is, right? And, and, and I am an optimist by nature, right? That's why I do this work, is that we have the answers. We, we don't we have the answers to a lot of this right uh, it's about supporting the whole child from day one it's about integrating um, not just treatment but health promotion mental health promotion wellness positive development protective factors into every aspect of children's experience pediatric care, infant care, early childhood education, kindergarten, right? It's supporting families to be able to do the same, right? It's helping schools have the permission, the tools, the staff, and the resources to support the whole child and not just address learning loss and not mm-hmm. you know cram as much as they can into one particular day. It's looking at mental health, not just as treatment of disease, Mm-hmm. but as a foundational part of who we are as people, right? And so much of despair comes from, we know more and more, comes from a sense of isolation and disconnectedness, of feeling like you don't have someone to talk to. So strengthening, you know, what we've seen in the Surgeon General's report, what we hear from the CDC recently, the solutions are in strengthening children's sense of connection to each other, to adults in their school community, to adults in their community, um, and to their school and to their community at at large, right, are where some of the answers are going to be.
2: You're hearing Sarah Egan, who is the child advocate for the state of Connecticut, as we talk about, again, this youth mental health crisis in our country, also being seen in our state. If you have a question or comment, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So I mentioned this package of bills, now laws, in our state. Can you break them down for us and, and how they will begin to respond uh, to um, you know many of the points that you mentioned, Sarah? Yes,
3: uh, happy to. So, I mean, this is a you know that this new legislation and there's so much of it, right? I mean, each of these uh, bills that pass, Senate Bill One, Senate Bill Two, House Bill Five Zero Zero One, you know, are pages and pages and pages long, right? Because I think legislators understand and are responding to what they're hearing from the community that we sort of need um, everything. Right. And so you see a lot of everything in these bills. Right. You see dollars to support the hiring of mental health professionals in schools. Really important. We know what schools have is so variable. Right. We know so many elementary schools don't have a social worker. In, in in their school, and so many more don't have a dedicated social worker, meaning someone that's there full time. So dollars for that. We see dollars for school-based health centers to expand to offer mental health care um, across dozens of settings in schools. We see dollars to support what we call integrated primary care, which is helping pediatric offices be able to screen, support, and refer. Um, reliably and and confidently children for behavioral health um, needs and supports. We see dollars for school community liaisons, right? Um, Individuals in schools who can help link children and families to community providers. We see more dollars for a program that Connecticut's a national leader on, which is community mobile crisis. Um, which is a service 211 that parents, or community members or schools can call to have somebody come to your doorstep within 45 minutes to help address a child in crisis. We also see really importantly investments in infant toddler care, in early childhood education, that recognition that um, that, you know, mental health and well-being starts at the beginning with access to the support that you need from day one, right? We know we have huge holes in infant care around the state. So we see dollars for that. That's just some of what's in these many bills um, and the many provisions in them to get us started, to give us a big kickstart as we begin. What I do have to say is a journey of a thousand steps. I mean, so it is a journey. The bills are a great first step. They should be celebrated that we had bipartisan support for this galvanizing effort that legislators were so responsive to what they're hearing from the community it is incredibly powerful and should be recognized. But it is a beginning and we have a lot of follow through to do.
2: Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Tina's calling in from Waterbury. Tina, what did you want to share?
0: Hi, yes. I was just um, listening and my son did have a school psychologist available at their school. However, the one time he chose to reach out, he was denied access because he did not have a IEP. He was not able to access the school psychologist until um, I hired a private student advocate to advocate for that
2: access. Uh, That's uh, troubling to hear, uh, Tina. Sarah, what would you tell uh, Tina about her situation and and how that should have been handled?
3: Yeah, well, I'm nodding here, which Tina can't see. Right, um, but I'm nodding along with her story, and I'm sorry that that was frustrating, and I'm sorry it was hard to connect your your child to the to the adult support you felt like they needed in school. Um, and but I think that's a common story, right? And that's part of the re that's part of the resource limitations that our schools have had, and how those resources are allocated. That even with the social workers that schools may have or the psychologists. They are often, as Tina uh, was referencing, allocated for special education testing and special education related programming, right? And those kids need that, right? That's important that, that there are resources to respond to that. But but historically, those resources are not in school for sort of for, for, for public health reasons, right? Helping children across the schools um, and, ha- and being there um, when children who may not have an IEP or a 504 plan also needs support. And again, it's not because they don't want to, right? I mean, the adults in our schools by and large, I mean, they want to help every child there, but our schools have not been staffed and support to do that, mm. right? And one of the big movements legislatively, Lucy, that I think is really, really important to tie into this discussion is the movement for funding schools equitably and fully right which is a movement that has a lot of momentum and i say to people every chance i get the school funding movement is a children's mental health movement Mm -hmm. because even as we add um you know counselors and social workers which will take time which will not happen overnight which we will need sustained state funding or federal funding to support as long as we still have children that go kindergartners, that start school in classrooms with 25 plus children that may be under-resourced in other ways, where teachers are stretched thin in other ways, we're not gonna meet the moment in the way we need to. So we really need a transformation of what how, you know what cl- how classrooms are funded and how teachers and administrators and paraeducators are supported to focus on the whole child. And to make sure that supports are there for all children.
2: And before we head to break, in response to Tina's comment, with this infusion of other mental health care professionals, uh, like additional social workers, you anticipate that there will not be this rec- this requirement that a child have an IEP to be seen by by someone in school, Sarah.
3: So that would be the hope, right? That with the with the dollars that allow for more um, more more bodies to be recruited more professionals to be recruited into schools that they would be available for larger swaths of children right both on an individual basis and on a group basis right there's so much need in our schools lucy we almost can't do a child by child right I mean, you want to make sure that individual children can get the individual support that they need, but we also have to go group of children by group of children, you know, reaching out to as many as we can, holding circles, holding groups, letting folks know where the help is if they need it. Um, But yes, that's what part that's what these resources should start to help address.
2: That's Sarah Egan, Connecticut's Child Advocate, as we talk about uh, youth mental health care and there's new laws on the books in Connecticut about how to, to boost uh, these resources for schools, for families, for, for communities. Uh, if you want to join us, our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Mm-hmm. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall We're talking about the youth mental health crisis seen in our state and across the country. Connecticut has three new laws meant to respond to this crisis, including helping local school boards hire and retain staff like social workers. With us on Zoom is Sarah Egan, Connecticut's child advocate. And in just a few minutes, we're going to be hearing from a social worker who works with uh, school districts across our state. You know, Sarah, I wanted to go back to the the school health care, health centers uh, that some schools have. And, you know, there was debate in Killingly, Connecticut, about whether there should be a school-based health center or mental health clinic at the high school there. Can you respond to that story? And, you know, is there pushback in other districts as well when we again hear that there's a crisis happening but if there's pushback from parents i mean you know where does that leave us here to respond to these children that need help
3: right well we have to respond to what our kids are telling us right and i think all across the state in Hamden, and killingly in new haven kids are telling us that they need more support Right. Um, I think it's important to engage with communities and parents around what school based health centers are and what they're not. Right. Um, You know, most, you know, um, the there's a lot of misinformation, I think, in Killingly about that, that for some folks had the perception that a school based health center was going to be delivering sort of, you know, radical care and treatment to children. Secretly and without parental consent, and that's just not the case. That's not how school-based health centers operate. So I think it's really important as we look to enhance resources in schools and to um, uh, expand school-based health centers that uh, that, that discussions are, are open and engaging and informative, that misinformation is systematically combated in open and clear ways so that communities understand that school-based health centers are part of a public health strategy for positive, healthy child development, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but our children are, they are crying out for help. I, I wanted to lift up something, Lucy, that um, from one of the students in New Haven where they, they did this community walkout, because they felt they didn't have enough help in school. And one of the children was talking about how they felt stuck. They felt like they aren't being heard. Uh, the deadlines are beating them up, they said. I'm not getting the resources I need. One of the children said she's often told uh, often told that her guidance counselor is too busy. She says, we have more correctional staff than guidance counselors. I'm literally screaming, help me, help me, help me. But you're not doing anything, she said. Right. And again, you know, it's not that the adults in the school, they want to help, right? But we need the supports, the structure, the systems in place um, to do that. And and I also agree with that child and the other children that, you know, more police in schools is not going to fix our public health problem that we have here, which, um, you know, some of these bills bills are going to start doing. And school-based health centers are part of that. You know, they're not the full answer, but they're an important part of our public health approach to student health and development.
2: Uh, to get another perspective on you know, the resources that are available to help children, uh, Carrie Ann Frank is joining us on Zoom. She's clinical program manager for the school-based health services for Clifford Beers. That's a not-for-profit mental health clinic that serves 17 uh, surrounding towns and school districts, I believe, in the New Haven area. Carrie Ann, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. And so I wanted you to respond uh, to um, what Sarah has brought up. And we think about the work that you're doing in schools. You know, what what does this look like here?
0: Um, I am in in agreement with Sarah. Unfortunately, the students are struggling. The staff is struggling. Um, the school system is lacking in human resources. There's not enough staff who's there and the staff that are present are not properly trained to handle the crises that our kids and our families are going through at the moment.
2: And we heard sarah talk about social workers but when we think about the the kind of of staffing that needs to be in place uh in schools that also includes counselors psychologists and i'm wondering how you can if you can talk more about the work that you're doing in these school districts
0: so as a school based program we offer you know clinical um and case management we offer through the clinical individual we offer family we offer um, group um, through trauma-informed group work. We go out, we're not this based also during the school, they were based in the school. We go into the homes, we go into the community, we reach the families where they're at. We offer care coordination as in a wraparound model to help the families to connect, not just to the clinical, but also community services that will uplift that family. Um, so I in uh, the school based health centers are definitely a benefit. They are well needed and every school should have every school across this nation should have a school based health center.
2: And how do you respond? We hear often that there aren't enough mental health care professionals in our state. I think the package of these laws is hoping to recruit some uh, from out of state uh, to come here. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that, you know, that the need is there, the demand is there, but there aren't enough people uh, to respond.
0: Unfortunately, we were staffed before. And with the, you know, the, the onset of the pandemic, a lot of people have left the field for various reasons. And we are overwhelmingly understaff when it came, when it comes to the support of therapists and all across the genres. Um, so the need and demand is there and hopefully this bill will, you know, bring in talent into the community as well as not a, a diverse, a diverse, mm-hmm. um, which is more very, very important to consider the diverse need for mental health professionals. You know, we need more people of color, we need more people, uh, we need more males, Um, people that speak um, various languages, as we're seeing an onset of immigrants. Um, So the need is definitely there.
2: When we talk about trauma, it can look uh, very different uh, depending on the, the individual person. But, you know, just in the, the last week, uh, so many people responding uh, to uh, what happened in Uvalde. And, and Carrie Ann, I'm wondering how, you know, this comes up in, in, with the, the student population that you're serving, and you know, and how you're able to help them uh, when when they see this kind of thing happening and how it might trigger certain things uh, that, that may, they may have in their community as well.
0: Um. It varies individually and it varies throughout the communities. You know, the need that Kenley might have might not be the need that New Haven is gonna have. Mm -hmm. Um, New Haven is a very high crime area um, and responding to support the staff and the students in one particular school after the shooting in Texas, it was more the staff needed the support regarding the shooting in Texas, but the students needed the support regarding the daily violence in their community you know, the gunshots that were, that they have become immune to on a daily basis.
2: Mm. When you hear about this uh, package of bills and now laws in our state, I mean, are you heartened by uh, this, this approach of uh, this anticipation that, you know, more resources are coming? Uh, anything that the, the lawmakers didn't tackle that you think is important to address, Carrie? I
0: think, you know, more funding definitely for the non non-for, um, non for profits um definitely opening up um issues regarding licensure um for those that are in the state um cross state licensure would be very good um making the process easier you know for professionals to be to be retained within this field um i think they tackle some of the issues but yes there's a great demand as to other things Um, As far as housing, you know, um, community-based services that tackle kids between the ages of 12 to 16, that how do we keep them busy? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of summer programs, you know, supports for the family, the guardians, how we tackle their trauma in order for them to help be be fully engaged.
2: i wonder if you can pick up there because as we know school's ending soon a lot of our conversation about how to support uh, schools but we think about community crisis management uh, as we head into the summer months uh, what are your concerns
3: well you know i had to echo um, a lot of what carrie-ann is talking about um because we have a long way to go to have the kind of investment in community-based supports that we need um so i think that that sobering reality has to be grappled with so that we can fix that, right? I mean, as, as recently as the end of the legislative session, I'm hearing from providers around the state that they have a waiting lists, not days long, not weeks long, but months long, months long for uh, basic um, community based mental health services for children. One provider told me it had 300 families on their waiting list. 300 families, a child that my office has been uh, helping um, who was discharged from a hospital with a recommendation for um, it's PHP with partial hospitalization program services um, was told there was a waiting list of seven months for that service. And that's because that child mm-hmm. has a developmental disability um, which is, you know, a category of children we haven't talked specifically about today, but mm-hmm. for whom a lot of these uh, problems we're talking about are even worse because of the specialized workforce, the specialized services, the specialized competencies that they need from a system that's already stretched too thin, right? So um, so as I said before, you know, the, the legislation is a great beginning um, and to be celebrated. But there are a lot of steps in this journey. We are going to have to do a lot of things to hold ourselves accountable. As school is ending, Lucy, as you raised, um, you know, these problems are not yet fixed. And so I think what we want to concentrate on over the summer is a couple of things. You know, trying to keep kids as connected as we can um, to each other, to adults, to positive opportunities that may exist in their communities. I know mayors and, and across the state are trying to prop up, um, you know, their community centers, their camps, um, their recreational facilities, Um, anything, you know, any state help we can have to continue to make those the museums and the parks and things open for children, to be connected, to have fun, opportunities for families to have fun. Um, It's beginning of June, you know, there's always more that we can do, as Carrie-Ann was saying, to invest in those community, social, emotional, recreational opportunities, making sure that children and families have access to food all summer long, not one meal a day, but all of their meals. Um, It's something that's gonna be really, really important. Mm -hmm. Um, knowing that parents continue to be aware of 211 if they have a concern, if they need help, if they need someone to talk to.
2: And um, Sarah, uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. Carrie Ann brought up the importance of funding. My understanding is there's still a lot of, of COVID money that the state has not spent yet that could be allocated towards uh, some of these uh, programs uh, that you've mentioned. Uh, what's your yeah. take? Me?
3: Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry about that um yes look I, you know as the child advocate you know there you get no better investment for your dollar than investing in children and families you know we can know that over and over and over again we've got um arpa dollars that are unspent we've got rainy day fund you know when COVID came it has since COVID, it has been raining and pouring so the more dollars we can we and you know we, we can spend some there's more we could spend And I wouldn't just say spend invest right and the investment in children um, is so much more cost efficient than um, than treating children later heart attack by heart attack, you know that we can't keep doing right. We have to invest in them um, from a health promotion standpoint.
0: Mm -hmm. I also like to add to that, you know, not just the COVID funding, but also overall the policies that, you know, the insurance companies use to dictate who gets what services and at what capacity for how long, you know, because some of it is, okay, if certain families are dependent on where you work, your insurance dictate what services your child could get. You could get six sessions or you could get 40 sessions. I think these are also things that we need to look into long term.
2: Carianne Frank, excellent point. Thank you for raising that. Carianne is a clinical program manager for the school-based health services for Clifford Beers. That's a not-for-profit in the New Haven area. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Also with us, Sarah Egan, Connecticut's child advocate. Sarah, always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for your perspective. You so much, Lucy. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Now, coming up, we hear from Connecticut's kid governor, Makai Etienne Modest, a fifth grader at John F. Kennedy School in Windsor. First this week is Connecticut Public's end of the fiscal year membership drive. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to support the station. Mm-hmm. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall In November, fifth graders around the state elect a new Connecticut Kid Governor. It's a national civics program that began here by the Connecticut Democracy Center in 2015. Here's my recent interview with this year's winner. Joining us now on Zoom is Makai Etienne Modest. He is the Connecticut Kid Governor, a fifth grader at John F. Kennedy School in Windsor. Makai, welcome to the show. Thank you. And congratulations to you. What is How does it feel being the, the Connecticut kid governor this year? It feels
4: really exciting. I think that it's a very good way to be very social and learn more about how to help in your own state or community.
2: Wonderful. So you're definitely involved. You're an involved kid in your community by running to be Connecticut Kid Governor and, of course, being elected. So can you uh, walk us back to when you found out you were the next Kid Governor? What went through your mind, Makai?
4: It was all really exciting. It was all really fast. When I found out I was Kid Governor in the morning when my teacher said, oh, we're just going to an assembly for our school behavior I was like oh that's just boring but when I saw that video come up and it was I saw a lieutenant governor I was like I know it's gonna happen I know it's gonna happen and they called my name and I when I heard all the cheering I knew that a lot of people were supportive and That's why they voted for me.
2: And so for our listeners who may not be familiar with the role of Connecticut Kid Governor, you had to come up with a platform, so to speak, and related to an issue that you really care about. So tell us what your platform is.
4: My platform is Protecting Our Pets. It's about how to show kindness to animals and really how to protect our pets from animal cruelty. Knowing that I have animals at home, my own dogs, the fact that companion animals are being abused, it's not a good thing to hear. Knowing that I can let other fifth graders or even other people to learn about my platform, it's truly a good thing.
2: So your platform, again, is Protecting Our Pets Educational Program. And so you mentioned that you have pets at home. Can you tell us a little bit about them?
4: Yeah, I have two pets. One of them are a pit bull. His name is Blue. And the other one who is called Paco. He's a chihuahua. They're both a little crazy, but I'll always love them.
2: (laughs) That sounds like quite a pair. I have two dogs at home as well. Both pit bull mixes, Wally and Luna, and they keep us on our toes. You're hearing with us here on Where We Live, on Zoom with us, Makai Etienne Modest. He's the Connecticut Kid Governor, a fifth grader at John F. Kennedy School in Windsor. He's joining us uh, uh, from part of his school day. Can you walk us through what, what it's like to be Kid Governor, what you've been doing? And I understand you have a cabinet as well.
4: Yeah, it's very hard working and it's tough at times, but I always have to remember that I'm making a difference in my own community, in my own state. And I know that it will definitely pay off. And my cabinet also helps me with that, too. And they have amazing platforms just like mine. Um they're amazing, and I really think that we're gonna get along.
2: And these members of your cabinet, they are other fifth graders in the state, Makai? Yes,
4: um, they actually have platforms kind of like mine. Um, we have Brian, whose platform is on physical activity in schools. um Madeline, whose platform is kids in anxiety and olivia whose platform is on child food insecurity elizabeth whose platform is on climate change sadwick whose platform is also on climate change and samantha whose platform is the cleaner connecticut and i think that all of their platforms should be shared because i know that those are also very important Platforms and very important issues that we still have to solve in our everyday world.
2: Oh, I I follow the old state house on Twitter, and there was a picture of you with your cabinet. How often are you working with them, Makai? We
4: do do we do um, once a month cabinet meetings, and I think they really just go over what we're gonna do next in the following months and the months coming ahead. And it's really a fun place to learn more about each other at the same time and also have fun.
2: Definitely. It's important to have fun. Uh, You said that sometimes it can be tough. What's the hardest part about being Kid Governor, Makai?
4: The hardest part for me about being Kid Governor is probably talking in front of people. I just normally get nervous. And I think that's a thing a lot of kids and a lot of adults can really just relate to. And I think that the more into my turn that I get, the more I'm going to get used to it. So. Yeah, really just talking in front of people.
2: Well, you're doing a great job during this interview. I know you've had many media interviews since being elected Connecticut Kid Governor. Can you tell us about your role models? Who do you look up to?
4: My role models are definitely the past Kid Governors because I know that they've had also a hard time. And I think that they are a reminder that I should keep going and also the kid governors that had similar platforms to me may be focusing on animal cruelty or showing kindness to animals because I really think that it's just a good way to remember maybe I can learn more about them or their platforms and maybe learn more about how I can maybe fix some of the mistakes that I've done, really.
2: Mm. I I imagine your parents, your family are so proud of you, Makai. Can you tell us about them and what was their reaction when they found out you were elected kid governor?
4: I really think they've been very supportive. I know they've been very supportive and it's been a very long journey, but I know that it's going to be fun the whole way until the end, but I know they've been really excited since the start. They've been, my mom was very emotional. I was too, um, it was a really happy moment. And I think that I'm going to learn a lot more and we're going to have a lot of fun.
2: Mm. Do they call you Governor Mackay at home? (laughs) sometimes I wish <laughs> well you're such an inspiration I gotta ask you know do you know what you want to do when you are an adult Makai are you leaning towards politics yeah
4: I mean I think that I definitely can do that I think I might run for office when I go up or at least be something involving the office but yeah maybe go for governor or even president
2: I love it. Good for you, Makai. I can't wait to, to see where you land. You know, as a, a kid governor and learning about uh, civics, uh, part of what lawmakers do are create laws, especially in our state. So, if you could create any law for the state of Connecticut, uh, what would it be?
4: I know that I wouldn't be so specific, but it would definitely involve animals and in being. Kind to animals and not showing any animal cruelty and not just being kind to animals, definitely being kind to other people because I think that's something that people can know in their everyday lives and definitely involving one
2: of those well makai it's been a pleasure to talk with you again you're joining us uh, on your school day so thank you for fitting us into your busy day is there anything that we missed that you want to mention in your role as kid governor
4: i think there's one more thing how you can learn more about my platform like the like my the website the ct kid governor org website, you can learn more about my cabinet, my platform, and maybe even see my blogs that I'll be doing every month.
2: Well that's great information. We'll be sure to share it with our listeners and also on our website and our social media. Makai ATN Modest again, Connecticut Kid Governor of Fifth Grader at John F. Kennedy School in Windsor. Such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Makai. You're welcome. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Connecticut Democracy Center has open registration for the next school year. Fifth grade teachers can register their classes to vote in the November election for the 2023 kid governor at ct.kidgovernor.org. Today's show was produced by Test Terrible. Now, I talk to a lot of Connecticut residents on the show, like Makai, and we take your calls, too. Please support where we live and all the great programming on Connecticut Public during the end of the fiscal year membership campaign. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more.